Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're especially grateful that good news um, comes into times of great difficulty, and it redeems us. It saves us. It shows us a way of glory, Lord. It's not like the world's glory, but it is profoundly glorious. I pray, Lord, that each and every heart today, more of your glory would shine in and that we would reflect it in the world. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. It is such a joy to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name is Father Eric, I'm here with my wife Jeannie from Light of Christ in Kenosha. It's just a couple hours away. We're actually on the lake, which, which helps quite a bit. For those of you who live near some of these bodies of water, it's helpful, right? When it gets really hot, it can be uh, quite a few degrees different. And uh, so it's a great blessing to live there. But it is a special blessing for me to be with you here this morning. I, um, I really have this sense that like, I've, I've not seen most of you before. You're new faces for me. And yet I have a deep sense that you are family and that we share the same Father in heaven and the same Spirit and the same Lord, and we are kin. And so it's so good to be with you here this morning to share worship and to share fellowship and to come together uh, around the Word. I want to talk this morning about, um, about suffering, uh, suffering as a, actually a critical, even crucial phase of growth. And it's not something that we often talk about. It's very contrary to the world. Uh, but I think it fits in with a series that I understand from Father Scott that you guys have been doing in Acts, because uh, I'm sure at the stage that you're in, in Acts right now, there's been a number of folks who are really shining with the glory of God and a witness to Him, and it's coming fused through suffering, right? And then there's this manifestation of the kingdom, and it's so powerful, it's so redeeming, and lots of other people who are in the midst of their own suffering are drawn to the light because of that kind of witness and a kind of manifestation from the truth of hearts that are on fire with the Holy Spirit, that are completely dedicated to Jesus. And that kind of thing only happens in people's lives when they've been through some refining fires, and it's even a crucial phase of growth. I um, was thinking about this a couple weeks ago um, in the context of a a former classmate of mine went to Wheaton College. I graduated a long time ago in 1987. And uh, one of my fellow philosophy majors uh, was a guy named Andrew Brunson. And Andrew's been in the news the last couple of years because he was recently released from a Turkish prison. He was a, he was a missionary in Turkey, and he was spreading the gospel there, and then he was uh, wrongly uh, imprisoned and accused for it. Um, definitely, Andrew is not a terrorist. I remember Andrew, he's a very mild-mannered man. <laughs> he's very intense, as most complicated philosophy majors are. But he was a pretty, you know, kind of like chill kind of a guy. And so the idea of him being in that situation was just mind-boggling. We prayed for two years. It was a whole prayer campaign that was gathered of his fellow alums to try and see what we could do through the power of prayer. And we really did storm the heavens. There was all sorts of other things that happened politically and interventions and so on. And he was eventually released. And he tells the story of his captivity. He had been raised in a missionary home and he'd always thought, well, if I ever get imprisoned, I've read a lot of those stories about people who've been imprisoned. 
and I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to receive it, I'm going to cooperate with it, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be like on fire in prison. And um, he even had this idea that while he was in prison, he would really experience the presence of God, because surely at that moment, the presence of God would be really um, life-giving, really vitalizing for him in his deepest moment of need. And so sure enough, the first month of his imprisonment, um, it was true. He's like, this is beautiful, Lord. Thank you so much for being with me in my time of difficulty. And uh, he already, he, had, he knew he was going to write a book, and he had the title of the book was going to be called The Presence. This is his story, he tells. And he was working on it, his manuscript and his mind. I think he had writing instruments and stuff like that, but he had the whole thing laid out. But after that first month, he was transferred to a different prison. Then he very rarely saw his wife, like just a, every other week or something like that. He only saw his mother once in two years. And then he was all of a sudden feeling very much the loneliness of it and the boredom of it and the interminable aspects of just being alone. And he lost all sense of the presence of God. He's like, where are you now, Lord, in my time of need? And it was a kind of a, a suffering that it, for him was just beyond words. And it wasn't a physical torture, but the mental torture was real because of the absence of God's presence, the absence of those who loved him around him. He had a sense of people praying for him, so that was a grace. But in his time of trouble, he really didn't feel the Lord's presence. So it was a real suffering. But one thing that did happen during that time was the Lord did leave him incredible love for him and incredible love for Jesus. He loved Jesus. That he had. And it was as if the, the suffering was a particular, like maybe it was a desert wind blowing on a flame, but it was still doing something in him. And it was causing to well up within him just songs to like, I love you, Jesus, and you're worthy of it all. And that sustained him. He didn't have the same sense of the presence that he had when he began, but he had that. He knew that he loved the Lord, and he was just loving Jesus. And as much as he could, he shared that love with people when he came across them. And he was released after a couple years of prayers and interventions, and that, he feels like, is the main message he wants to share with us. And it was forged out of a time of suffering. And he feels like that's the most important message he could bring to us back here in this so-called liberated West, right? That he, he, the, the, the verse that the Lord gave him was from Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about end times and the disasters that would fall upon the believers, the time of suffering that they would be in. He talks about how men's love will grow cold because of the multiplication of evil and wickedness. And he said, I'm so grateful that the Lord showed me a value of love for him that was so hot that I could continue in that love for him. That was a grace, and it was a sustaining grace for him. And it was a value that he is now embodying and bearing witness, and he's having all kinds of opportunities to talk about suffering and how he was refined in that fire and is able to bear witness to a value that nothing can quench, a love that suffering cannot quench. His love had not grown cold, and he was able to bear witness to it, and he's bearing witness to us. I think a lot of times we resist the things of suffering, whether we, 
We come upon them passively. Sometimes it just happens, right? Uh, sometimes it's actually something we have to enter into. That's more like what Jesus' suffering in the gospel is like. He has to enter into a way of suffering. He could have actually avoided it and sti- sidestepped it. I think a lot of times in the West, we actually do sidestep it. My brothers in Nigeria, when they come over here, they say, it's so hard for us when you do not stand in the truth and bear witness to the truth when we're bearing witness to it, sometimes looking down the barrel of a gun. And the reason you don't bear witness to it is because you're afraid of a little suffering of being politically incorrect, maybe? You want to just stand up for Jesus and declare that you're a a Jesus follower? Maybe even a Jesus freak? (laughs) Because that's how they'll see you, right? And they, they challenge me on this. And I want to talk about that a little bit today because I think that's what Jesus is putting his finger on in the gospel. He's making such a a move. It's so contradictory to the way that we operate in the world. It's such a contradictory word, but it's the way of life. It's a way of entering into a particular kind of suffering that is kind of like a growing pain. But if you don't go through it, you will not grow. If you don't go through it, you will not grow, and it's a crucial phase of growth. For him, it's his cross. He's this miraculous ministry of multiplying wine and bread. It was festival. It was fun. And he said, that's not my hour. But this is his hour, and he's about to enter into what he describes as his glory, where he's going to bring glory to the name of God. And this is, everything's been pointing to this. And it's really, it's mystifying to the disciples. They, they really don't get it. And the world doesn't get it. And when we enter into our cross, because we have a cross that we carry too, and it is actually unique to each of us, And when we embrace the particular kind of suffering that has to do with the way that we're supposed to manifest glory, God's glory, for His sake, when we are in the fire of suffering ourselves, not because we've chosen it, but because it's been given to us, the question is, will we we enter into it? Will we let the truth of what we're supposed to manifest, what we're supposed to bear witness to emerge out of the suffering fires of our life. I think um, there's a lot of different ways I want to illustrate this, but one, one of the simple ones, I was talking with some friends in a small group context about this concept, this idea of, you know, sometimes your real heart value, who you really are, shows up when you're in the fires of suffering or maybe even an evil situation. Certainly God hasn't brought it onto you, but you're in it. You're in it. And if you work with the Lord and a Father who loves you and a Spirit who will empower you, it actually becomes an opportunity to become more truly who you are, right? And um, one of the simple examples that we talked about, um, actually picked up from a friend of mine named Kevin Miller. He used to head up Christianity Today, and he talked about when he used to sit where you're sitting right now, and somebody was really butchering a sermon. He has a, he has a gift, and he, in fact, headed up preachingtoday.com. Right? So he's sitting out there where you're sitting, and somebody's doing a really lousy job of preaching and teaching. And he says, man, it was just like, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's excruciating. And it was a kind of a suffering. It was because he had a heart value that said, you know, actually teaching well and edifying the people of God well is really important. And when I don't see that happening, I, I suffer a little bit because I'm actually a person who cares about that. I'm supposed to take that value and I'm supposed to manifest it in the church and in the world and I'm supposed to help other people do that too. 
that, he understood something about himself that he would not have gotten if he hadn't had that experience of suffering in the way that I'm describing it. Does that make sense? Right? I think that's a very simple way that it happens. But there's more profound ways that it happens too. I think what Jesus is saying with his little parable about the grain of wheat, unless it falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. It doesn't bear much fruit. But if it does, it will bear much fruit. I think what he's saying is that there's a crucial way of growth. Just think about it. He's talking, he's talking about this grain of wheat. It's actually, in order for it to mature and do what it's actually supposed to be and do, it actually has to go through this process of dying to what it was in order to live to what it's supposed to be ultimately and the glory of that, of fruitful living, of abundant living, shared and spread and given to people to enjoy. And what he's saying is, this way is my way. That's very different from the way of the world. Just a brief little bit of context. Jesus is saying this right after he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And even in our passage, it, it talks about the leaders of the Jewish people saying, look, everybody's going after him. What are we going to do? Because they're feeling threatened. He's gaining momentum. He's picking up steam. And then these Greeks show up, these Greek Jews, and they're like, we've heard a lot of good stuff about this guy. We'd like to meet him too. I mean, he's on the ascendancy, right? He's... He's upward affiliating, if you will. Now some Greeks who were kind of like the, that the cream of the crop of the culture of that day, they want to connect with him too. And that's when he brings this word. He says, I'm not going the way of more and more power. It's a very powerful thing he just did, raising Lazarus from the dead. That's not how I'm going to spread the word. And I could get more and more of a phenomenon going on here and gather more and more people to me. But I'm not doing that. I'm going a different way. And it's a way of suffering. Jesus is not a masochist, right? So he's not saying, find out what you can do masochistically in order to do this. What he is saying is that it will happen in your life. Something in you will make you realize this thing in me that God has given to me to reflect and express, it actually is, it gets disturbed. He says even, now my soul is troubled, right? That's his expression there. You could say it this way, now my ego is troubled. Because the word there is psyche, it's the same word. Now my ego is troubled. What's our ego? That's that part of us that knows how things get done. That's the normal way that we know how to succeed in life. We know where we fit in the world. We know how to play by the world's rules. And we know how to achieve some kind of success and fame and reputation. And I think a lot of times that's exactly what he's saying. What I'm going to take you through is going to disrupt all that. It's actually going to not be you building up your ego and establishing power upon power upon power. It's going to be much more like love upon love upon love. It's going to be much more like humility upon humility upon humility. That's what's grace leading to grace. That's the glory that he's talking about. So that even as he's lifted up on the cross, that's the glory he's talking about. And then the resurrection. Boy, does that really, in order to be lifted up by the Father, gone all the way down into this way of humility. In order to be lifted up by the Father in a true form of fame. Not the fame of the Greeks and the world, but the fame of the Father who then spreads that fame through the Spirit, through the witness of the church into all the world. That's the glory he's talking about. I think there's a similar kind of a glory that he would call us to. 
I think sometimes it's, it might be that part of you that you've actually tamped down. Like I think sometimes people are maybe um, kind of introverted, maybe even a little bit passive. And, and maybe that's because when you grew up in your family context, the way that your ego had to get formed in order just to survive was like, I'm not allowed to actually emerge out of my shell. Otherwise, I'll be hammered down like a nail. So I've got to suppress and repress and depress myself, right? But it might actually be God's actual calling upon you to die to that in order to rise to the truth of who you are so you can actually be that person who stands out there and other people notice you so that you can say a word to them, so you can speak to them, so you can shine your light that reflects Jesus to them. That might sound really scary to you right now, but it's possible that the suffering that you've experienced is a clue. Pay attention to that. It's a particular kind of a suffering if you're tracking with what I'm, I'm saying. It might actually be the reverse, you know? The only way you could survive is for you to be this really outgoing person who is very funny and drew all attention to themselves. But the truth is, if you're really going to be yourself, maybe you need to learn this way of quiet. And that's actually very scary to you because to be really quiet means to not exist in the context of the world you grew up in. You might have to die to that way of being in order to emerge into who you really are. I'm not trying to say who you are, either one of these examples. I'm just trying to say notice these things. Um, because it's, it's kind of like if you, you don't die to that, you're not going to rise into the glory that you have. It would be kind of like a baby in the womb, as beautiful as that is. But if a baby never emerges from the womb, as wonderful as that must be, a lot of poets call it like the Elysium, the paradise of the womb as you're just floating there in this constant state of surrounding love and everything's taken care of, cared for, and it's so beautiful. But would it be beautiful if that baby didn't die to that reality and emerge into the maturity of who they're meant to be in this world and become glorious in this world? Something very similar, I think, is what Jesus is talking to about here. Like sometimes it's, it's even values that you think that can't possibly be true of me. I'll just give you an example from my own life. Um, I, was, uh, I was at a, uh, I went to a friend's church. I have a prayer partner, uh, Pastor Keith. He's a, a church just down the road from us, and he's a dear friend. We're just kindred spirits. He's part of a, a, a black Pentecostal church. I really believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit flow there. And his, his boss, we've got bishops here, but he has a, a guy who's an apostle, He's kind of a prophetic gift, and I've met him before. His name is Apostle Leon Walters, and a good man. Um, I've been blessed by him before, but I decided to go to one of his services. It didn't conflict with any of ours, and just support Pastor Keith. So I'm sitting there, again, kind of like where you guys are. I'm in an environment where I don't know anybody. And in the middle of the Apostle, uh, his, his sermon time, he just says, um, who are you? I'm, <laughs> I'm Eric. He says, oh, would you please stand? Okay. <laughs> and he said, Derek, he, he, could, he didn't get my name right. He kept on saying Derek. Derek, I think I've got a word for you. And he says, I think, I think the word is, is radical. I'm like, no, you don't. You need to go back. Check that one again. That's, <laughs> I didn't say that out loud. I was trying to be respectful. But he says, yes, I think I'm hearing the word radical. And even some people who know you and the few of you who might actually know me, you, you probably do find this funny. Like, I know, I see a few people here. Think of me as radical. Does that make sense? 
I'm like, no, that's, that's not right. No, radical. He said it three, four, five times just to make sure I really got it. And he said, and he said, I want you to know that the ministry that you carried forward in the future, people will notice that about you, which is bizarre. You'll think it's bizarre. Thank you for that. And, and that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And the Lord had been saying that for, to me for a while. My enjoyment of the Lord and the joy of the Lord would be my strength. And I, whenever I say that, I feel like I want to I jump a little bit. And that's not normal for me either. I'm usually just kind of stiff because I'm Norwegian. And uh, he, he said that to me, and, and it, all, everything crystallized all of a sudden because I remembered another situation about 10, maybe it was 15 years ago. I'm terrible at time. And I was at this Anglican gathering of a bunch of South, uh, you know, uh, Global South partners. It was at Wheaton College in a 2,400-seated auditorium. It was jam-packed with people in the aisles. I think it was called something like Anglican, uh, Anglican's Awake, which was really good because I, my sense of Anglicanism for a long time was which is very, very staid and stately, which is beautiful. I like that. But we did need to wake up. And so we were having this wonderful time of worship. At a certain point, and this was after the Eucharist, I'm standing over here, and I think this is where all the, the clergy were. Somehow I ended up in the clergy group, and I was with Bishop John Ruchahana and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, all of a sudden I see the Africans, and of course, and they're dancing, and that's very cool, dance. And they're moving around the altar like this, and they're dancing, and that's very cool. I thought, that's great. I'm glad that those guys are doing that. They're, they're going to hold up the wing of the church that's really enthusiastic. Praise the Lord. Privately, I say this. And then I'm just going gonna, gonna to hold up the other wing of the church, right? And um, I'll just stand here so that they know that it's, we're all in this together, kind of. And then Bishop John turns to me at one point. He says, you go dance too. And I, I really respected Bishop John. He'd, um, he'd lived through the genocide and um, had led in the reconciliation process there at Rwanda. And he says, you go stand too. And I said, no, I don't, I don't dance. I can't dance. I don't dance. It's not in my genetics. These bones do not move like that. And he says, I command you, go dance. <laughs> I, okay, I do believe in obedience. So I kind of like crouched around. <laughs> I tried to do it. Tried to do smooth jazz. I couldn't even muster that. It felt more like Gollum. Um, if you know, yeah, strange, creepy, crawly guy. But what I realized was at that time, a seed was planted in me is that like even, even in my way of being, that I meant to manifest a kind of a joy. It was an embarrassing experience. It really was. It was a kind of, you know, low-level suffering for me. And I remembered all the times when I was a kid, my natural, ebullient ways of being, they got tamped down. I, I think that happens a lot in our culture too, doesn't it? And I remember Leif and I, my brother, we would get cookies or ice cream and we would we'd just start to dance. We would move. And our bodies could not help but express that heart value of joy. So I would say, like, maybe notice the sufferings that you felt when you were shamed. And what was that value that you were shamed about? What is it that really is difficult for you to deal with? For me, it's as a pastor and a peacemaker, sometimes it's when, when I feel like there's two wings in the church that aren't coming together. And truth isn't being told or love isn't being shared. And man, that hurts me. What is it that hurts you? Pay attention to that. Because I think manifesting even through suffering and maybe crucially 
intentionally to walk through that is the only way that you will be able to share the glory. This is, by the way, the joy that was set before the Lord. He went through suffering for a joy that I'm describing, for a glory of God that I'm describing. This is, by the way, the only hope I think that we have for the next generation is for us to do something like this. It might feel weird, it might feel awkward, it's a kind of social suffering, but it bears beautiful fruit. We have time for one more final illustration? Okay. Um, I was talking to a deacon, Deacon Val, who's in our cathedral church, about how do we bear witness, not just to this generation, but to the next generation. And she said, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. We're still praying about that. We are aware that the faith being handed on to the next generation, that, that, that's really vital enough to continue, is in jeopardy right now. We're worried about that. But she said, I had a really beautiful story given to me by my daughter who just got back from Israel. Her daughter, Karis, got back from Israel and brought these dates that were from Israel. They were the sweetest, richest dates that she'd ever had. They just melted in her mouth and they were exquisitely good. She did a little research on it. She found that these dates in Israel, they really are the best in the world. And the reason for it is because they grow up in a really harsh environment in the desert where there's a lot of hot wind, there's a lot of oppression coming against it. And those plants somehow in their genetics, they know that the only hope for the next generation is they take all of their energy and put it into those dates, which are the seeds. They need to die even to, you could say, their own beauty. There's a suffering that they have to go through because they are, in fact, the ugliest date plants in the world. There's a kind of a suffering that they go through in order to produce these really rich, rich dates, which then become the seeds of the next generation, continuing the beauty of dateness in the world. And I guess what I want to say to us is, you know, we don't choose suffering. We're not masochists. But when it comes upon us, what is it that the Lord is doing here? Is he calling you forward into a greater truth of yourself? Pay attention to that. What are those heart values? that you're to manifest. And even if it's awkward, and even if you feel like I did, like Gollum dancing around the altar, or like a shriveled up plant, like, but you're totally dedicated, however awkward it is, to manifest the unique value and glory of God, I just want to encourage you to do it. After distribution, I'll, I'll be happy to pray with any of you in the back with the other prayer ministers, because I do believe this is important for us. If we're going to be an ax church, really bearing witness to the good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.